The Walk the Mile podcast is produced on Gadigal land. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Skeg Starlinghurst stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. May our reconciliation be an ongoing process of love and compassion. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Lee Lindsay, school chaplain at Skeggs Darlinghurst, and you're listening to Walk the Mile, a podcast that opens up conversations that we need to have. of Walk the Mile. It's good to have you here. Today's special guest is Dr. Joseph Gus. How are you, Dr. Joseph Gus? <laughs> I'm, I'm very well, Gary. It's a real pleasure to be here. Good on you. Where, where did the doctor, obviously, do people ever say to you, uh, you know, hey doctor, can you fix my sore elbow? Or... <laughs> uh, mainly students. They'll, they'll ask me questions like, you're a doctor, um, does this look infected? Seriously? Like every now and then. Right. I think they're joking. I hope they're joking. And and you're a doctor of... I'm... Uh, I, what does the title mean? Uh, I think it's... All of the like PhD things are technically a doctor of philosophy. Right, um, okay. But, of course, what it really means in my case is that I've um, done a high degree in science. Right. And specifically, uh, I studied chemistry and wound up in this area that sort of overlaps between chemistry and physics. Okay. And uh, what I did to get that degree was to um, spend a lot of time in a lab doing doing experiments. Right. And what sort of experiments on what type of things? So the technique that I was using back then was uh, laser-based spectroscopy technique. So for the regular folk out there, that's um, I shot lasers at molecules, essentially. Right. And... Uh, the molecules that we were studying then were they were kind of interesting obviously to us and they were unstable which meant we had to produce them inside a vacuum chamber it's a kind of box where you pump out all the air so the molecules have nothing to react with because right. if they did have something to react with they would react and then you wouldn't have them to study anymore and the purpose of that research was really to investigate the atmos- uh, the chemistry of the atmosphere the way that sunlight can drive chemical reactions and how that can affect things like the ozone layer and uh, the chemicals, the types of things that I was investigating uh, had the potential to release chlorine, which can have a big effect on various aspects of the chemistry of the atmosphere. Okay. And did you have in mind at that time what you wanted wanted to do with science? Because I'm guessing that science has always interested you. You've told me that your, your dad was a scientist as well. What sort of science was he involved in? So he was in uh, in a field called protein crystallography. And what they would do is essentially try to figure out the shape of very, very large, complicated uh, molecules, proteins, biological molecules, that the shape can govern a lot of how they work, what they do. And determining the shape is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously something that has become a lot easier over time with better technology uh, but he has spent he spent his career 
trying to uh, solve protein structures. Right. And uh, the first one that he solved was, uh, um, what is it, plastocyanin, which was solved on the day I was born. Wow. So, uh, so he was in the lab when you were born. Uh, he, the story goes that he was in the lab, they're about to solve it, and everyone else there forced him to go to the hospital because they didn't want my mum to kill him. <laughs> Which would have been an interesting experiment in itself. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And so did he talk to you a lot about science when you were growing up? Were, were you sort of... That picture of, hey, Dad, tell me more. How does this work? Or... Not, not really. Not in a specific sense. In what in, now that we're you know in, in teaching, uh, we would call that we would call that content knowledge. There wasn't yeah. a huge amount of that. I think it was more about the. He was more of an example of, uh, as was my mother. You know, our family. You could say almost that science was our just way of thinking, right. and and it was more about yeah asking questions or just the way I remember I'd always whenever I'd have something exciting you know it wasn't wasn't that he'd pour water on it but I'd sort of say oh this is amazing like what about this and he'd just have a way of asking a series of questions that would get me to think more deeply about that thing you know if I said oh I just heard about ESP you know you can talk to people with your mind it's like well if that was true what about this And, and just so there was there wasn't any just here, I'm going to teach you chemistry yeah. today. Yeah, right. More about... Just the way that, that to, it was. Yeah, how to question, how to question, how to develop a series of questions. And I think that sort of always stuck with me. And it was very much, well, it was very much in your environment because you said just then that your mother was involved in science as well. What was her I mean, she, she was never a, a career scientist, but she, she had a uh, degree, she had a science degree, I think, in... Remember, it was a microbiology, right. um, but then had various other yeah. other jobs. Yeah, and that wondering about stuff because you, you know, from what I know of you, you're very, very good at that. I often sit at lunchtime and we're having conversations about anything, and you'll have a, a range of stories and uh, anecdotes about different ways things work. I remember one day you tell me why. Hot water <laughs> washes dishes better than cold water. <laughs> and I still remember that. I still tell people, hey, you know why? I don't know if I've got it right. <laughs> but you're very good at that. So that environment, it sounds like it, you, you came from a very curious environment. I think, yes. And no, I think, I mean, aren't all children curious? And Yeah, but I don't know if they have... I know when I was growing up, there were no questions to be asked. You know, I had a lot of questions. I wanted to talk about things, but my family of origin wasn't big on talking. Or, you know, rolled their eyes if you had a question which seemed a little bit off-centre. Or... I think, yeah, I think it, at least in my family we were... Questions certainly weren't discouraged. And... Uh, there are, I guess there's a few occasions I can remember where something interesting might have happened. You yeah. know, I think my um, dad might have been washing dishes at some point. And just, you know, when you pour water from a tap onto a spoon and it makes that big kind of yeah, yeah. sort of fountain, fountain effect. Yeah. Um, I remember him showing me that. And I 
think I'd already seen it, but I was sort of like, yeah, you know, I've seen that before. But it's like, it's interesting. It's worth taking a moment to think, like, there's something that's kind of interesting. Yeah. How is the water being directed like that? And that type of curiosity, because I think sometimes science can be interpreted as more factual matter. Sometimes we talk to, when I talk to kids, talk about how do you think, let's say, for instance, how do you think the world began? And they say, well, science explains it, that's it. So yeah. there's an explanation for everything. But is from again, from talking to you and our conversations, I think there, there is far more curiosity in science than just we have to find the answer, we've got the answer, then we move on to the next thing. Mm. I've, I think I've expressed this to you before as a, the kind of difference between what many students perceive science to be because of their experiences in school and what science really is. And of course, there are so many different aspects. So science is a process. It's a way of finding things out. It's a razor that separates things that might be true from things that are probably not. Yeah. Um, it's the body of knowledge generated by that process. Uh, and it's a type of questioning it's a type of questioning. Uh, there, is a, there is a limit to the type of question we can ask. In science, we always talk about a testable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. If there's something we have no way of finding out, then it's not yet, at least, a question for science. We've got to find a way that it yeah. can be tested. Otherwise, your hypothesis is just some statement you've come up with. And I think students especially, and you can understand why they're in school and they see science as being this list of facts and they are assessed by sitting in a room and writing answers to questions that someone else already knows the answer to and then if you become a scientist it's almost the opposite yeah, you right. you spend your time trying to find questions where the answer is unknown and trying to do everything you can to figure out what the answer is and there's no there's no back of the book with the correct answer yeah, in it yeah. so it becomes then a question of, well, how can I be sure? Can I really actually make this statement? You know, and you publish it and then someone else says, well, actually, no, you haven't thought of this and that and the other. And you go back and revise your publication or redo your experiment or modify things. And the ideal of science is that together we make progress in our understanding of the universe that way. Um, it doesn't always work that way, but that's yeah. the ideal. And I think, I mean, newer science courses, um, this year I have a science extension class, the year 12, one unit subject, and you can see there's a lot of encouragement for that kind of thinking, yeah. and we see it also in the other senior sciences, there's yeah, much yeah. more emphasis on that kind of scientific thought rather than scientific fact. And it sounds to me like in that course, kids bring along quite a bit of stuff that they're, they want, it's not hard for them to find things that they're wondering about. I mean, there are so many questions out there, mm. and and we the I guess initially in that course uh, we spent quite a long time developing a research question. We start off with something general. You know, students are interested in various issues around their lives or yeah. things that they've read, and then it's just a matter of refining and redirecting until we find here's a good question that has sort of no answer yet, mm. but will prompt a decent investigation. We talked about you being a doctor of philosophy <laughs> before, and you do run the philosophy club here at school. Uh, you oversee that club, which is, it's 
been a, a great addition to the school. It's been going for a number of years now, but uh, kids love it, and it's a, a great place for conversation as well. Which I'm guessing goes into the scientific field, but it's not just that. The f can you tell us a bit more about your view? Because we've had other people talk about the philosophy club. But what what do you hope that students gain from it, or what do you think its purpose is? I should state up front that I, <laughs> when you say I run the philosophy club, what yeah. you really mean is I mark a roll <laughs> and send the occasional administrative email to make things happen. No, mate, no. <laughs> um, we actually, we have a philosopher who comes <laughs> once a week and, right. and philosophizes with the students and is very knowledgeable about philosophy. Um, but to your question, and, and I'd absolutely love to participate and to be on the periphery of philosophy club, but I just want, I don't want you to overstate my role. Um, I think students get uh, something really wonderful out of philosophy club. They discuss issues and are directed in their discussions to really look at things from so many different directions. They, they get practice in not just saying, oh, here's this thing that happened in society. Here's the incarceration rate for uh, these people in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm against it or I'm for it. Yeah. But really, well, wait a minute. Let's, let's look at that from the position of what's best for the many. That's yeah. one, one sort of philosophical idea that's come up a number of times in Philosophy Club this year. Uh, or what about what does the individual deserve? Or the uh, relationship between rights and responsibilities. The... Uh, the difference you know between individuals and society justice yeah. what is education what does it mean to learn a thing what does it even mean to know a thing and these questions when I state them in general terms are a little bit airy-fairy yeah. but uh, under the guidance of a genuine philosopher <laughs> we can sort of distill them and take things apart and expose relationships in our thinking you know are you saying that um, fairness depends on equality of opportunity or equality of assets or you know really start to you know sharpen our understanding and I mean the topics that we've covered over the over the last term and a, and a half have really just excited these conversations yeah. in, in students I mean last week we were talking about cancel culture right. and you know this is a topic that teenagers are much better versed in I think than certainly me and just the the range of, of experiences they've had participating in cancel culture yeah. or observing cancel culture and what they can draw out of that as de definitive traits of human nature it's absolutely fascinating um, yeah so I think philosophy club is a place where students who like to think about thinking yeah. can, can go yeah. and really sharpen their minds against each other which is interesting isn't it it's interesting that, that it is that popular because we tend to think sometimes, very generally, that adolescents or young adults are fairly black and white in their thinking. But I don't know if that's true all the time. I think there, there is a lot of wonder and there is a lot of curiosity. I think it was almost in our first uh, meeting of the Philosophy Club this year, we laid some ground rules. And they're the kind of things that are obvious to you know, the students, but it was important to just state them. And one of them was, we will treat, we will listen to each other yeah. essentially, and yeah. and we don't mean anything 
to be hurtful individually, but there are going to be opinions yeah. expressed here yeah. which might upset you. Yeah. And I've seen a number of occasions in which all sorts of social and ethical issues have been raised where students have disagreed with each other yeah. and, and expressed an opinion that someone else has disagreed with enormously, but there's, in philosophy club, and I hope in most <laughs> conversations at school, there, there's this... Um, like a sense of safety? A sense of, that it's safe to say those things yeah. and that the person who's saying those things isn't showing me any lack of respect or putting me down. They're just expressing a thing. And the benefit you start to see when these conversations go on enough or week after week, you know, that longer timescale, is that it can, it can hone your own opinions. They start off as a gut feeling. You know, Ooh. I'm against that. That doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. And then someone who disagrees with you really forces you to... Well, why? Why do yeah. I think the things I think? And yeah. every now and then you see someone who says, well, hang on, maybe I was wrong. Yeah. Um, there's this, you know, there's, there are logical reasons to think in a way that's different to the way I think. And, or, or I'm even more firmly held in my beliefs, beliefs now because yeah. uh, I've been challenged, but I've thought about a response yeah. uh, to each yeah. of those. Yeah, that's right. I've thought about that from all of these different perspectives, not just that initial gut feeling. Yeah. And we yeah. see that in science as well, that there's some paradigm in science, some belief based on evidence. And when presented with uh, data that doesn't fit that evidence, it causes us to either strength, strengthen our theory, you know, yeah. really reinforce it by looking and at the situation more, more deeply, or to discard the old theory and replace it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great thing, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we're discouraged to ask why uh, and have that, like what we are saying at the beginning, have that exploration mm. uh, rather than, you know, some styles of education or maybe older styles of education where we're just about the teacher saying, you know, dictating yeah. and you write the stuff down. Yeah. <laughs> Repeat after me. Repeat after me. I've... I've um done that as a kind of a joke in my year uh, 11, when I teach year 11 physics. I have this, <laughs> um, and there is a purpose to it, but yeah. I just, I state this one sentence, uh, an electric field is a region of space where a charged particle experiences a force. And I state it, students repeat it in a, just a boring monotone. <laughs> and um, I'm always kind of secretly hoping that um, my head of department or someone higher up might pop into the room and say, you know, what's, what's, what's innovative at, at, at school now? What's, what's happening that's really, you know, really exciting and cutting edge? Oh, here we are. There's a teacher. Oh, he's just reciting a statement and students are repeating it back to him. But um, it, it becomes this, well, it, it goes somewhere better than that. It, it becomes this kind of leaping off point for a discussion of what a field really is. Yeah. Interesting concept in physics. Yeah, because um, I think sometimes we can silence people when they ask why, can't we? we just, I, I remember when I was studying to be a minister mm. and often I would ask why and people would either move away from me, seriously, like mm. walk away from me. People just won't respond sometimes. I find that really foreign to my experience. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious about what the culture, I mean, I have had mm. very little to do with, the ministry in my life um so 
can I ask questions? Yeah, yeah, by all means. I think, <laughs> What's it like? <laughs> I think it was more... I think when you come from a fairly conservative, restricted view on anything, you know, it's your choice, isn't it? The way that you learn. I've learned this. Uh, this is truth. Mm. There's no other truth. There's no other way of looking at this. And so if someone comes to you with a... a a different view, different opinion, a different way of looking at things, it's very hard to break through that barrier if you're someone who believes not there's only one way of doing things. But it's, it's a, it is a choice, it's an attitude to be able to go, well, I don't know everything. Mm. Um, I, I think to be a little forgiving, it's probably an easier, an easier attitude to acquire the ability to entertain other opinions if you have not been brought up in a uh, rote kind of indoctrination yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're if your entire life you've been encouraged to ask why or at yeah. least not not discouraged from asking yeah. why and I think some institutions mm. um, encourage you to not go outside the boundaries you know mm. stay in your lane type mm. type of thinking and uh, and I guess that's been my experience and I guess that's why you know, it fascinates me uh, the way that you do things because it, it encourages that. I, think I like that. It's it's a bit risky at the same time, but it's not dangerous sort of risky. It's it's you know you have to think on your feet, don't you? Sure. Um, I think I I don't I can't really recall a time a student has asked a why question, and I've responded with that's the way it is mm. and in fact I, I do recall explicitly telling students I mean it's a student who will come to me and say oh well yeah but you're right because you're the teacher mm. or you know you've got this mm. title doctor and and I will you know immediately leap on that and mm. say well no you know if I ever say that I'm right because I'm the teacher then I mm. want you to say but that's not good enough yeah. um, where's the evidence that's what science is about and often a, a good why question from a student that you might know disagrees with the body of whatever knowledge you're teaching it doesn't have to be science any mm. subject i imagine is such a great starting point for a series of questions that leads the student to a much deeper and, and better understood uh concept of what's really going on yeah. they say well why why don't i don't know water molecules behave like this yeah and why don't they just fall apart and Coming yeah. together and say, well, actually, that's an interesting question because sometimes they do fall apart. And let's talk about forces now. You know, why would they stick together? Why would they fall apart? And just build them up, and they wind up with this. They don't have to take anything at face value. They can, they can do that task then themselves yeah. of building it up from. Well, that's principles. the thing, and that builds confidence. That builds self-esteem, mm. a whole range of things. It gives assurance because they've come to that, haven't they? Mm. They have, they've realised they have the ability to come to that. Mm. You've given them a few tools and I think, yeah, and, and it makes more sense then rather than just being told, well, this is how it is. Yeah. You know, okay, I'll take that because Dr. Gus said that is a doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's, I mean, it's... It's, it's almost become a joke between you and me that when I see you, you say doctor and I say reverend, 
And I think we, we think a little bit about the genuine, the real meaning of titles. Science and religion. <laughs> yeah, together at last. I want to talk about that, in fact, science and religion. But it's interesting that we've come up to this. It wasn't staged at all. But it, it's interesting because I think it's the, uh, what's often called the dogma of religion, where, you know, the, the conversation can often stop by... Well, the Word of God says this. Mm. Are you refuting the Word of God? If, you, if you're questioning or wondering about this, you know, are you really a Bible-believing Christian? But in my belief, I think, you know, if you think about science as reason in, some, in a lot of respects, religion as faith, faith you know, how can you how can you even put any restrictions around faith in a way? You know, if there is this God who's grand and be able to, able to create the world and do all these amazing things, how can we even know a tiny bit about something so great? Mm. And so, when I was at college, we had philosophy, and <clears throat> I remember the first lecture we had, and the lecturer called Keith Maskell, who's a wonderful guy, said, how many of you have ever doubted? And then straight away, <laughs> my hand goes up, and I'm looking around the room, 150 people, and there's no other, no other hands, right? No other hands, and slowly I pull it down. <laughs> but, you know, even in that, like, it doesn't have to have an impact. I think doubt is incredibly important to your faith to having faith i don't see how faith cannot live without doubt yeah i mean these are these are questions that are obviously beyond my scope of experience but as a person um, as, a, as a person okay <laughs> i have some experience as a person uh it's it's such an interesting topic isn't it this idea that i mean yes i agree with you there's there shouldn't be faith without doubt how can you how is it possible really to believe something that someone told you without testing that yes, idea, exactly. without questioning to exactly. me that idea? If someone says to you, you can trust me, mm. or I love you, there's got to be some sort of evidence of that, doesn't there? What did the, was it the Soviet era Russians trust but verify? Yeah. So there's... And your verification comes from that ounce of doubt. There's yeah. going to be some doubt in it. Yeah, it, I mean, this goes back a little bit to what we were saying about about taking things, uh, just the dogma. I mean, it, we see it in education. If you're, if you're, if there's any element of sort of rote learning, I think that to me there's a, a deeper belief that I have that probably isn't supported by evidence. I know there are educational researchers whose work I should read more, uh, but I I have this kind of feeling. I have this suspicion that. All learning is done by the individual. That it's not possible to learn from someone else telling you a thing. Mm. That there's the internal process. And I'm sure in Philosophy Club we will do this in far more structured detail and make far more sense of it. <laughs> no, but but that, that the individual has to, like we were saying before, come to the conclusion. Has to yeah. build up their understanding. And so I've always found it very unsatisfying when someone says it's just that's just the way it is just here's yeah. how you here's how yeah. it works um for anything beyond just instructions for 
whatever. But even, I don't know, if I'm following a recipe online and the person says, oh, this will make sure that your potatoes come out of the oven extra crispy. I, I can't really myself take that on faith. <laughs> I want to know why. Like, what exactly, that thing what is crispiness? Out. You know, <laughs> how, how do these factors, and that's in that case a scientific question. Yeah. But, and there's, uh, cooking's a really good example of, mm. of, there are so many interesting cooking myths that have been addressed. They've just been handed down. Yeah. And it turns out a lot of them kind of work, but not for the reasons that have been suggested, yes. like yes. Um, sealing in the flavor in, in a steak yeah. by searing it first. Uh, that's, you know, been demonstrated to be completely untrue. Now, there's a reason to sear yeah. a steak, but it's not the reason that they've suggested. And I, yeah, I, I find it hard to just believe someone who says anything yeah. without a bit of questioning. Yeah, and I think, that's, I think that's a good thing. And I think just thinking about the sometimes what people stage is the dilemma between or the conflict between science and religion but is there actually a conflict do you think there's a conflict because just in this discussion alone you're talking about exploring and discovering and and then we talk about religion and um you know sometimes that can be sound more absolute than science in, in some ways uh but i think in some ways it's it's Reaching for the same thing, don't you think? Um, I'm not sure I see it exactly that way, but if if science is the set of well in, includes, let's say, the set of testable hypotheses, these ideas that are measurable, mm. that you know we can we can figure out the potential difference between point A and point B on a circuit using stuff that we understand, stuff yeah. that we've built, measured, tested, that, you know, we, we can do that. And to me, uh, religion looks like it's not testing hypotheses oh, and certainly yeah. not, not looking for testable hypotheses. I, yeah, I definitely agree with you there that it's, you know, you believe, like what we're saying, believe by reason or believe by faith. I, mm. I can sit on this chair because my reason is that it's a chair and it's sturdy and can hold my weight. Um, but I'm also doing it by faith, believing that it's someone hasn't come in during recess and taken the legs off it. Yeah. <laughs> and there is, I don't know how much of all of, all of everything is knowable. Mm. Um, science allows you to address some of that. Yeah. And as technology makes progress, as our understanding makes progress, we are able to chip away at that uh, material that was previously unknowable mm. and now becomes knowable you know we, we weren't able to measure how fast light travels and now we can yeah uh, and in places I feel like that's historically chipped away at religion yeah which had an answer where uh, talking about the way stars and planets you know move and operate well we can measure that with science that that's now part of the testable hypothesis yeah. realm of, of knowledge and I guess, and really no expert here, religion, religion's dealing not just with other content, but with a, an entirely different way of thinking of, about it and looking at it. Yeah, it is. It's a different approach. I guess what I'm saying is that both are seeking to know, aren't we? Hmm. It's, they're, both, they're both practices or processes for humans who want to know. Want to work, you know... Even the why am I here, or 
even the, the meaning question in science, you know, how, mm. how does that work? And just trying to find meaning mm. in science. I, I, I don't know if if you're talking about meaning, like why why am I here? What is the purpose of my existence? I'm not sure that uh, science has a a general answer to that question. No. I would think, you know, in the biological sense, you could say you're here because of a very long series of cause and effect involving exactly. uh, genes and mutations. And but it maybe it it springs off to something else. You know, thinking mm-hmm. of, is there life on Mars? And we find life on Mars and think, okay, well, if it's the universe, there's life on Mars. Then you know, but we don't read about that. Doesn't say in the Bible or the Quran or anything about Mars and <laughs> life on Mars. But maybe that causes us to wonder about that aspect of it. You know. And what would that what would that make you think about? I mean, I guess, or maybe you can speak on behalf of the people whose hands remain down in in that uh, that <laughs> I, lecture. I can't speak on behalf of anyone. Mate. <laughs> How do you think they take the, the 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 news that life was discovered on another planet? Well, I think some. I guess this is what I'm saying. You know, the difference between belief, uh, you know, reason and faith. But I think, you know, in my view, you can have both. And I think some people might go, no, it's not in the Bible. Hmm. And so therefore you can't. Some people don't believe in dinosaurs because they're not in the Bible. Kangaroos surely are not in the Bible either. Kangaroos are in the Bible. But then also in the Bible it talks about cutting your beard to a certain length and, you know, where you should go to the toilet. Hmm. And I definitely don't follow those rules. So I guess what I'm saying is that the... And I, I don't know how we ended up here on science and religion, but... The one topic we've never talked about in our <laughs> many conversations at lunch. Religion's never come up. That's right. And science barely. Oh, I'm fascinated with the science of it all. <laughs> but I think when you ask the question, what, what would their view be? I think, yes, I think for some of them... And I don't even think it has to do with God or faith as such. I think it's this protectiveness around it. Like, because it's named as truth, and I don't, I'm not disagreeing that it's not truth, but truth is, to me, you have to keep looking for it. Like, you know, yeah, I believe this is true, but, you know, I don't know everything. And so, there might be some defiance towards that. It's it's a challenge for any body of knowledge that, claims to be definitively true and doesn't allow for change. Yeah. Science is all about the change. Yeah. You know, that's, that's its, uh, as a body of knowledge, it's, it's its defining trait almost, that it's capable of yeah. changing. And I guess once you say, you know, this is, this is true, then you can't change what it says, but you can change your interpretation of it. Or you can look for the bigger meaning, which to me, it strikes me from religion from attending chapel with you is what you're always doing you're on that explorative quest to find what's what's the actual meaning of all yeah, this not yeah. not some sort of uh, low level interpretation of bible verses but more a big picture of well how should we be towards each other yeah, the, the sort yeah. of philosophical approach and only only you can answer that question not you in particular don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but only the person can answer that question yeah. can't they how should i be how should i be 
That's right. That's yeah. right. Living overseas, working overseas. Mm. How much does culture affect, or, or I, I was going to say ethnicity is probably not the right word, but how much does culture affect science? Do you think that's a, that is a really really interesting topic, and we've in philosophy club we've brushed on culture and. Um, the result of that conversation for me was that I just don't know what culture is. I thought I, I, you know, it's one of those things you think you know what it is. And then when it comes down to defining it, is it, is it a group of people? Is it a group of practices? But sure. not everyone in a society adopts those practices the yeah. same way. Yeah. You know, is, is a Christmas lunch part of the culture? Yeah. Or, you know, what really is the culture? And we talk about arts and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but let's just say, I know what you mean when you say culture. And <laughs> the practice is different in Finland. You yeah. Say. And uh, yeah, yeah, how does culture affect science? I, I think there are some really interesting effects. I don't know if there have been studies by, you know, people who study that sort of thing yeah. um, on this. But I have seen a couple of interesting things. Um, in Australia, we have a, a culture where, like in science, when I was, when I was working in science and I've seen elsewhere, that... There's not much of a hierarchy. We refer right. to a research group as a research group, and sure, there's a, usually a, a PI, a, a professor or someone who's like in charge of the group, and a few postdocs, and some PhD students, and some honors students, and so there's a hierarchy in terms of how long they've been doing science. But when you're in the lab and you're trying to fix something, or trying to make something work, or collecting data, or writing a paper, I always felt like it was just a very flat, you know, yeah, right. you know hierarchy. And that that, um, that was beneficial for science. That helped us to get forward because all ideas were entertained. Uh, you know, you can have that student who's only been in the group for three months say, wait a minute, why don't we try it this, this way? And probably, due to their lack of experience, what they've suggested won't work. But they feel free to say it and maybe yeah. it does work and it's yeah. worth entertaining. Yeah. And um, I'm aware of a couple of places where the research groups are much more hierarchical. Right. I've been to a, a conference dinner where you'd have a research group and they all sit down, they're all served food, no one touches their food until the professor... Oh, that sort of hierarchy. That sort just... of hierarchy. It's not just in the science, but it's... You wow. Know, and, and I think questioning and suggesting are a little less encouraged. Right. And, you know, I haven't seen any analysis of number of cutting edge papers published in that yeah, right. culture versus this culture but certainly a thing so uh, it's sort of more political in a way yeah that there'd be you know the correct way to do things and that you haven't earned that until you're at this status right. and that you wouldn't question someone who's above you yeah. whereas i've always felt like the strength of science is that your you know recent graduate can ask einstein a question yeah. what about this and einstein should be able to concede that oh i hadn't thought of that yeah, good right. question Let's yeah. investigate. Um, in, in Finland, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just I'm smiling right now. Uh, you can't see that on the podcast, but um, yeah, I'll always have a Finland-shaped hole in my heart. I think it's just um, so different to Australian culture in so many ways, and yet so recognizable as a place. You know, they have cars and streets and credit cards, yeah. and people have jobs and they live in apartments and they go yeah. to work. Um, it's it's not enormously foreign in, in those senses, but um, just the way people interact with each other. Uh, not a lot of talking. Finland's a very really? quiet country. Um, I, didn't, I wouldn't have imagined that. Finns, Finns are 
like notoriously quiet, silent. We'd have this experience um, in the University of Helsinki. We would go down for lunch in the cafeteria as a research group. We'd, someone would come around and say, all right, lunch. We'd go down to lunch. You'd get a tray, you'd get your food, you'd sit down at the table. And it happened many times. And in my first month or two when this yeah. happened, I was absolutely, I didn't know how to react. The whole research group would sit there. Everyone would eat. No one would say a word. Not a word. For, <laughs> I mean, 20 minutes. Wow. Not a word. And we'd be sitting at the same table with each other in yeah. a group. We'd yeah. look like people. And everyone else would be doing the same thing, not talking. Yeah, or the occasional conversation here and there. But yeah. in our group, you know, sometimes not a word. And then people would just, you know, keep tabs on each other, where you're up to in terms of your lunch. And when most plates seem to be empty, there'd just be this almost silent nod. Just, uh-huh. And everyone would stand up and take their trays back. Wow. And I mean, I was they're just... To me, it was awkward initially, yeah. but over four years there, it gave me the ability to endure any silence without feeling awkward at all. To me, there's no, there is no longer such a thing as an uncomfortable silence. Right. And what was, and it's not uncomfortable for them. It's just they're comfortable not speaking. Yeah. And so it was always in science. We're very international. We had a research group with people from all different places, and it was always just great to see you know, Spanish people and Italians who are notoriously talking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> interacting with Finns who are just yeah. um, remaining fairly quiet. Right. What, what do you think about that whole idea of science? Just when you were saying, talking about being in the uncomfortable silence, hmm. where science and psychology, I guess, is obviously a science. But what do you think about that idea of science trying to, well, this is my view, I could be wrong, but trying to explain something like psychology or, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about mindfulness Mm. and they were talking about the science of it, how it actually works. What's your view on that? I think, I mean, I've had sort of general thoughts about psychology which is that yes it's a science and to me from my perspective like I like to think of myself as a kind of quite a simple person in terms of science I start off with the the basic stuff and try to build up from there so you can start off with something like physics and derive chemistry and then chemistry is fairly complicated but when you break it down you find all these little physics relationships and then you can put them in sequence you'd get to biochemistry which governs biology and so psychology is at the at the really hard end for me i think trying to understand things like awkward silences or human nature (laughs) but you're you have you can't come at it from the well let's just talk about fundamental forces and build our way up through biochemistry to get to psychology we can see effects you can say when um a person's brain overproduces this or underproduces that chemical, then we can see effects in people's mood and behavior and energy levels. But once you're, you're talking about a feeling like awkwardness, yeah, yeah. It, it's so abstract to me. Yeah. It might as well be magic as, as I understand yeah. it. And so I think it, it must be very difficult to do any, any yeah. psychological studies. Because I, I guess, you know, I'll say to people sometimes, the things that we feel we don't have any words for mm. and so how do you explain something that you can't articulate well i mean there's there's some really fascinating work on 
um, linguistics and language and the relationship between having a word for a thing and actually being able to perceive that thing. So amazing studies on colour perception. And the famous uh, example is the ancient writings, the ancient Greeks, I think Homer, who described the, the, the sea as being um, wine red. And further reading of his writings suggested that you know, some people thought he must have been colorblind. All the colors are mixed up. The sky is white, you know. Yeah. And it turns out that if you look at pretty much any culture, uh, names for colors appear in this historical sequence that you start off having, I think, red, black, and white to start with, and then gradually a culture will add new words. And as they, um, the, the really interesting psychological uh, result was that as you add words for a color, you become able to perceive them, not just to describe them, say, oh, this guy, oh, it's, you know, it's light blue, it's dark blue, but like just recognizing that it's yeah, different right. to the color of a right. white sheet of paper. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> going back to what we said right at the start about rote learning, sometimes it's kind of nice to have names for things. <laughs> um, it actually makes some thought possible. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, this has been a great discussion great conversation Jay this is this is how our lunchtime conversations often go <laughs> but I will have to cut you off there because we've spoken for quite a while maybe I'll have to do a second episode sometime always a pleasure Gary <laughs> but thank you very much Joe, for joining me today and if anyone has any questions for Dr Gus or some feedback if you're interested in science in some way and knowing more about what we do here uh, be more than happy to hear from you but thanks for listening, and I hope you're all doing well, and I hope you've enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to seeing you around sometime. 